0: Hi, I'm Valerie Moizel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. At the time, I didn't quite know what I was doing. But by jumping right in, not being afraid to make mistakes, and surrounding myself with people I could learn from, I had no choice but to figure it out. Well, I'm ready to be fearless again. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. In fact, it's different for everyone, but there is a common thread. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order. And yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Before each interview, I thought it would be insightful to not only bring my perspective as a Gen Xer, but to have a quick chat with a rising millennial who is on her own unique path to greatness. My hope is that she will one day pass the torch and mentor others. Together we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are Women Who Rule. This is She Dynasty. I'd like to introduce everyone to Katie Golden, who works as a screenwriter as today's guest host. I asked Katie to be a part of our show because 29 years ago, she was adopted at birth. And since today, we will be talking to an incredible woman who works really hard to improve the foster care system in Los Angeles, helping kids get fostered and adopted. I knew Katie would bring a unique perspective to our conversation.
1: Hi, Katie. Hi, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to be
0: speaking to an awesome woman today named Lisa Pinto. And I was really thinking about who would be the right host to bring a unique perspective. And adoption and foster care is something that I knew so little about. And I know that your situation is a little bit different than what Lisa deals with just because you were adopted at birth and you described it to me as a dream situation. But tell me why you thought it was important for you to be here today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think my case was obviously the dream, you know, being adopted from birth, but I've always loved to talk to people about alternative family makeups with foster care and adoption. Even as a preteen and a teenager, I would have women come up to me and ask me, what's it like? What's it going to be like? And share their worries. So I love to talk about it because I think a lot of people are curious.
0: I'm very curious. I'm actually really fascinated by people who are adopted, I always have so many questions. And I never know if I'm being obtrusive asking. But um, I always ask anyway, just because that's who I am. <laughs> um, is it annoying when people ask you? Or do you like Not talking at all. about it?
1: I especially love you know, when these women will talk to me, because they'll share their fears. And I'm able to kind of put them to rest and tell them how wonderful it is.
0: A lot of the questions that I came up with today for Lisa were formulated because of the conversation we had and the questions you sent over to me. So thank you for that. At the end of the interview, we're going to have you and Lisa speak directly to each other.
1: Wonderful. I can't wait.
0: Lisa Pinto is a child welfare deputy in the county of Los Angeles and has been working tirelessly to shape policies to improve the foster care system for over 35,000 kids in need. For this, Lisa had worked for over 20 years, first as the district director for the Congressman Henry Waxman, and then for Congressman Ted Lieu. During her tenure as a district director, she became instrumental in creating and signing into law the Los Angeles Homeless Veterans Act of 2016, which gave permanent supportive housing for homeless veterans. She has dedicated her adult career to the welfare of others, and we're so inspired to have her on She Dynasty, as she is truly a woman who rules. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to She Dynasty. Thanks, Valerie. It's so nice to have you here. I have to admit, I'm probably the most nervous about interviewing you more than any other guest that I've had. And it's for one reason only. It's because you work in a sector um, that is worlds apart from what I do and something that I know very little about. And so you might have to help me interview you.
2: Well, I'm nervous too now, and I know you're a really quick study. (laughs) So, Lisa,
0: we met at a mutual friends party years ago, and I remember as soon as I met you, we sat and talked for hours. So as soon as I heard that you worked in politics, I was excited to hear about your world and so fascinated and inspired by what you do, just because it's so different than what I do. Sometimes I think about what I do And in comparison, it feels sometimes insignificant because, you know, here I am working in advertising, trying to sell people things maybe they don't need. And here you are changing lives. And so we're excited to tell your story.
2: Great. Thank you.
0: So, Lisa, tell us, uh, where are you originally from?
2: I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and moved around a lot when I was a kid.
0: And tell us a little bit about your childhood.
2: Okay, I had a pretty idyllic childhood. I didn't realize it when it was happening, but both of my parents were in the public sector, and I think it really sunk in by osmosis that that was a real possibility for my future.
0: What did your parents do?
2: My mom was a teacher, super dedicated. I used to sit on the couch with her at night, and she would call parents directly to tell them that their child was having a problem or that she wanted to meet them, but I'd never really seen anything like that. And my dad worked for a contractor who had contracts with NASA. So he did a lot in the field of space.
0: So your mom was one of those women who went above and beyond what her job was supposed to be and really wanted to help and make a difference.
2: Absolutely. And she volunteered for classes that had really challenging students. So I gave her a lot of credit for doing that, too.
0: And did you have siblings?
2: Yes, an older sister. And unfortunately, we lost um, my younger brother nine or 10 years ago. I'm so sorry for your loss.
0: And what was the dynamic like between you?
2: They always sort of uh, ganged up on me. And I was the middle child. So I guess that's to be expected. You know, I played like dolls and house and they were both really athletic. It was hard to find a common ground. I remember once my sister saying to me, okay, I'll play school with you, you go set up the room. And so I set up this elaborate set up that looked like a classroom and a chalkboard and everything. And then when I was all done, I went to get her and she said, Oh, I was just kidding. I don't want to play.
0: And what about your brother?
2: My brother was much more quiet and reserved. And it took him a long time to sort of find his voice. But I always knew him to be this really loving, great kid. He was small for his age. And as I said, he didn't really have a voice. And when we moved from Colorado to California, life was really different. It was much faster and people were into style and he was wearing clothes like from Kmart. He started getting bullied really early on and I didn't know what bullying was. We didn't have a name for it yet but I knew that he was having trouble. And we were one year apart, so I could see what was happening in school. And I went home to my mom to sort of report this. And I was like, you have to go buy him new clothes right now. Like that is the first step. And she was like, where do I go? What does he need? And so I told her exactly what she needed to do. And then I sort of became his protector at school and would watch, and if something would happen, I would not hesitate to go up to the people who were surrounding him and being unkind to him. and. I think, again, it sort of became the first time I noticed that someone was voiceless and needed someone to stand up for them. And I was really proud of it. And he was always really grateful.
0: That's so awesome to hear. It's nice that, you know, a spark of kind of what you did as a child kind of translated into your adult career. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So tell us, what kind of student were you?
2: I was a really good student. I remember my mom um, pulling me out of my bedroom saying, You've studied enough. You have to come down and like watch some TV or have dessert. I had one history teacher in particular who gave us really intense homework. And I always wanted to do a good job for her because I think that she sort of considered me to be one of her sort of star students. And so I used to write out these very detailed answers on my homework and went really above and beyond. And then I found college to be more challenging and didn't apply myself as much, but I still did pretty well. So where did you go to college? I went to UCLA undergrad, and then I went to UC Davis for law school.
0: And what was the spark that got you set on your way to law and politics?
2: When I was a junior at UCLA, I applied for an internship in Washington, D.C., and I got matched to a congressman who's no longer seated. Unfortunately, his name is Howard Berman. He was serving in the Valley, and he was a freshman, so he didn't really have all these firm positions yet. And he let me do a ton of stuff that normally a real staff person would do. And so I just got bit by the bug. It was incredible. So was going into
0: politics something that you knew you were interested in? How did you end up with that internship?
2: Honestly, I don't even remember. I just remember thinking that it was like a cool thing. And I guess someone must have told me about it. And um, on the day of the interview, I remember sitting next to this young woman who was much more gung-ho than I was. And she was definitely encouraging me to make sure... I did a good job in the interview, and we ended up becoming lifelong friends. And she's been one person who sort of pulled me along and said, it's time to go to law school. It's time to do this. So I was really fortunate that I met her that early on.
0: So politics wasn't... Uh, like a lo- a lifelong dream from childhood that you needed to be a part of? It's something that just kind of popped in your life and stuck?
2: I think so. I think when I was in Washington, as I said, if I could just elaborate a little bit, the things that happen in Washington are things that are on the front page of the newspaper the next day. Certainly, that's how it used to be. And it's pretty incredible to be walking the halls and getting to sit in on a hearing and hear about testimony. And the next day, it's literally on the front page of the New York Times and the LA Times and, of course, all the newspapers. So that was pretty incredible. And I just sort of watched the members of Congress and noticed that a lot of them were lawyers. And I thought, well, I could maybe come back to Washington one day. That would be amazing. But maybe I should be a lawyer first.
0: So you didn't really even have a plan to be a lawyer at this point?
2: No, I really didn't. I mean, again, I was just looking at members of Congress, and probably 80% or more of them were lawyers. And I thought, well, if I want to come back here, I should probably get a law degree. So during your internship, you
0: got to go to Washington and walk the halls of Congress. Tell us what that was like, what that felt like.
2: It's pretty awe-inspiring. I think a lot of people get bit by the bug. That's sort of the term we use. The buildings are magnificent, and they almost look like 2D paintings from the outside. That's how I sort of think about the Supreme Court and the Capitol. Um, both the Senate and the House side. And then the halls themselves are lined with marble and busts of former elected officials and former presidents. And it's very um, regal and prestigious. And it's hard not to be impressed by it, I think. Were you thinking that you
0: would move to Washington one day?
2: I think I was. I was thinking to myself, I want to come back here one day.
0: This time you were working for Congressman Berman? Yes. And what kinds of things did you work on with him?
2: Well, I think the highlight was, and I don't know if any of your audience is going to remember this, but um, he let me cover a hearing, and a hearing is when, you know, big fact-finding mission that... You know, very senior members of Congress hold and they bring in witnesses. And at the time, there was an elected official in our security division of the government named Oliver North. And he was testifying at a national security hearing. And during the hearing, Information was coming out that we were doing clandestine mining of harbors in Nicaragua. And they closed the hearing immediately for security reasons. And I like hauled ass down the hall to run back to my office to say, oh, my gosh, you can't believe it. The hearing was just closed down. So that's an example of something that was absolutely on the front page of the newspaper the next day.
0: And you got to work on this as an intern. Yes. Yeah. Which
2: is like pretty amazing.
0: Internships sometimes um, can be really powerful things. Yes. We'll talk about that more in a minute. absolutely.
2: So after UCLA, you decided to go to law school. Right. And that was sort of a default moment as well. Thank goodness the friend I've been referencing is named Susan. And thank goodness for Susan who said, we're both going to law school. We have to. If you want to go back to Washington and I want to be a legal aid attorney, we're going. And the other thing that influenced me, which is pretty hilarious, but you know, I was kind of like a, you know, I don't know, unsophisticated sorority girl, and a lot of my peers who were seniors in college weren't getting jobs. Um, that's just the way the economy was. And I thought, well, the best way to avoid that and not have to get a job right now is to go spend another three years in school. So I did, and I hated law school, but I'm really glad that I attended.
0: So you had this friend who you met in undergrad. Yes. And she kind of guided you all the way through law school.
2: Yes. Sounds
0: like a great friend. She's an amazing friend. I want to go back to what you just mentioned about internships and how important they are. When we spoke, you told me that your internships had a really big impact on some of the decisions you made in life. And I know a lot of young women are now interning for you. Tell us a little bit about the impact you think it makes to have an intern.
2: I actually tell young women this, and not that the men don't need guidance, but I've just been talking with women pretty much exclusively throughout my career about their plans. I think that they do two or three really important things. And maybe the first important, most important thing is that you can rule something out. You can go somewhere and say, I hate private practice, or I hate the public sector, or you know any imaginable career and then the reverse is also true that you could just fall in love with something and say this is the path I want to follow and the third thing that I think happens is you get exposed to being in an office you have to be on time you have to do tasks that people ask you to do you have to dress appropriately you have to you know sort of advocate for yourself to do the types of things that you want to do and I think all those things I don't think you can get those things anywhere else.
0: Yeah, I've had a lot of uh, interns come through my company, and a lot of them have been placed in really important jobs that they might not have had if they didn't intern. And it's really a great time to see, I guess, what we like to call a diamond in the rough, someone who's really going to sparkle and shine. And you can tell in a second when someone is going to be that person. And it's a fantastic feeling to be able to help them on their way.
2: I totally agree. I, I think that sometimes women in particular can be pretty tentative in a new setting. And very early on in internships that I guided, I would call... Young women into my office and close the door and say, Listen, this is how it's going to work. If you want to get to point B and be a superstar, these are the things you have to do and get out of your comfort zone. And I, you know, guide them through the whole process. It's kind of incredible. I mean, we could spend a day and a half on this topic alone, but it's always been so interesting to me that men have such an abundance of confidence when they don't have the talent necessarily. And the reverse is true of women. So I think that they just sort of cry out for guidance.
0: And have you had any interns that you've placed in important roles?
2: I have, in two different ways. One, I've acted as a reference for some interns. I just had a telephone conversation with a very senior staff person in Elizabeth Warren's office. And a woman who I know really well, who worked for us in our Washington office when I worked for Henry Waxman, called me and told me she was applying for this very competitive program. And I am serious when I call in on recommendations because I think it can really tip the scales. Oh, it's huge. So she got the job and she called me and was doing backflips. She was really happy. So I do recommendations a lot. And most recently in my fairly new job, I have pulled in two people who had been mentees of mine. And they both were offered jobs in my office. And so I'm really happy about that. And you know, my boss is super happy that I could bring in people who we knew would be talented.
0: Yeah, a lot of times um, people are weary of internships, either because they don't pay a lot, or sometimes they're free internships. But I think it's one of those things that people have to understand the power of what it can bring later down the line. Because I know for me as well, um, when I have interns who work under me, if someone calls me for a reference or if I have to call for a reference, my word is powerful especially with, you know, the experience that I have and, you know, everything I've done, and it can make the difference for them and what's next in their life. So I think if one takeaway from today is take your internships seriously and be amazing and shine, it's such an important part of the puzzle.
2: Yeah, I mean, imagine walking out of an internship and being able to place on your resume something really significant. It matters.
0: Okay, so going back to the four S's, you talked about uh, one of your initial sparks, and I'm sure you've had a few in your life, being walking the halls of Congress. I'd like to talk about one of your snags, and I love this lesson because there are so many people when they think that everything is gone wrong, all of a sudden it's just a message to you that you have to redirect and do something different, and oftentimes you end up where you're supposed
2: to be. So tell us about your first snag. Okay. <laughs> Um, it was pretty significant. I was fired by my first employers when I was in a law firm, and it was my first job out of law school and it was devastating. I was a young woman working for you know mostly men, and I remember on a Friday being called down to my boss's office, and the managing partner was in with him, and I thought, oh, this is very bad <laughs> and you didn't expect it No no I mean I was I was not putting all my heart into the work. Definitely not. But I don't remember getting warnings today. You know, labor laws would require you to give, you know, written warnings and verbal warnings. I don't remember that happening. I just remember this like walk down the hall. And um, they told me that things weren't working out and that I had to pack up my office and leave that night. And I think to sort of save face, I told them that I was on the verge of getting another job, which actually came true. So it turned out to be terrific. But it wasn't true in the moment? No, I was like just starting to look um, because I knew I wanted to move back to Los Angeles. I was in San Diego at the time. And it was devastating. It was humiliating. It took me years to talk about it.
0: Was it because um, like an ego thing? Like what, what about it was so
2: upsetting to you? I think it's somebody saying, you're failing, you didn't meet our expectations. And not you're failing as a person, you are a failed person, a difference between your work and who you are. And I felt it, you know, to my very core, I had nothing to compare it with, we talked about my education, I was like a super high performing person, you know, quasi superstar, and I always sort of viewed myself that way. And this was like pretty devastating. If you think about it, That Monday, everybody was going to come into the office and say, where's Lisa Elman? I spent probably years, you know, trying to like reconcile. And I think that I was also upset with myself because I wasn't doing my best at that job. And the lesson that I try and teach interns is that it doesn't matter if you're enjoying it or not. Give it your all. Right. So
0: Yeah, you know, I have to, unfortunately, the worst part of my job is that sometimes I have to fire people or lay people off. And I hate it. I hate it with all of my heart and soul. And even if it's someone who isn't doing a great job, I think about that moment that you're talking about, how devastating it is. And I'm proud to say that I think that every single person I've ever fired, and there's been a lot, Um, or laid off, has found an incredible job, has been on, you know, put on a new path and is totally happy. And I've even had a few come back to me and say, you know what, thank you for firing me because it really got me, first of all, it was a kick in the ass that I needed. And number two, it got me to the next place where I needed to go. So they always say it's good to get your heart broken once in your life. I think being fired is one of those things that's a really great um, learning lesson as well.
2: I agree. I just learned the term fail up. So, I think I failed up in that instance. I love that. So, I'm really
0: interested to hear about the shift that you made from the corporate profit driven world to the public service world. Some may perceive this as that you're giving up, you know, possibly financial gain for something that's, you know, just a different way of rewarding yourself. Do you look at it that way?
2: Not at all. I was thinking this morning that, um, Particularly living in Los Angeles, it's pretty tough sometimes to swim upstream when I have friends around me who make a lot of money and take me on fancy vacations, thank goodness. But not at all. I mean, I really can't imagine, I actually, when I was shifting away from Congressman Waxman, I was interviewing with a very high-powered law firm that does political advocating, and I was super tempted to join them. It was going to be a ton of money and a super fun team, but honestly, I got really nervous about being in the, you know, profit-making field. I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, I really feel like I have been a strong voice for people who have no voice, particularly veterans and, and foster kids, and it really is really gratifying. It's
0: really inspiring to hear that it's not just the financial part of this that inspires you to want to do great things. So thank you for that. All right, so let's move on to your time working with Congressman Henry Waxman. He was one of the most successful members of Congress ever. Tell us about that.
2: It was pretty much a dream. Um, He served for 40 years and retired in 2014 when he thought it was a really good time to leave and still have another life. You were with him for 18 years? 18 years, so almost half of his stay in Congress, and he was and is a really incredible person. I learned a lot about management from him, and I also learned a lot about strategy, and he's a really kind person, but I also learned... A great deal about government and policy and constituent services and he let me have a lot of latitude because he was mostly in Washington and I was always in Los Angeles so if the mayor needed something or a high-profile donor needed something. I was always there to be his point of contact. But the most important work I did was overseeing all the constituent services, meaning a social security check was lost and somebody's grandmother wasn't going to be able to eat the next day. And we had all these special contacts who we could call. They were liaisons in all the different federal government offices. And I learned to push really hard on the cases that really mattered, because sometimes it's true that government employees can be bureaucrats.
0: So you dealt with individual people's cases?
2: Yes. Wow. I had
0: no idea that that's how it worked. You know that phrase, call your congressman? Okay, I have, okay, I'm so happy you brought that up, because my husband told me to ask you this. When people say, call your congressman, does that work? Tell us about that. Okay, Because I always feel so silly like calling and being like, hi, I'm Valerie Like, Who the hell are you and who cares?
2: Yeah. Well, you're a voter. That's why people care, first and foremost. You're someone who can say, I am going to vote for Henry Waxman again, or I'm not. Um, But it's much more than that. I think that you're entitled to the service. So who answers the phone when you make those calls? My staff. So I would have eight staff people. And they would answer the phone and do an intake. And you want to make sure somebody actually has a federal concern. And then we would reach out to all these high-level offices. So you could call the Social Security number that's you know an 800 number and never get through. I was really insistent that we keep really good records and do annual reports. And the most compelling population of residents who we helped were veterans because the biggest VA medical center is right near UCLA in the congressional district. And these men and women have served our country. They signed up to possibly die every day, which none of us, you know, sitting in the studio right now have done. And it's pretty incredible. So when they call and say they've lost their housing voucher, they have a warrant out for their arrest, they can't find their family they are homeless, they don't have food. I mean, everything you can imagine. I ultimately decided that veterans were the most vulnerable of all of the vulnerable populations.
0: Why is there such an issue with homelessness and
2: veterans? Such a good question. And again, we should talk for days about it. I think that and I mean this in the most respectful way. I think some veterans come back from war with sort of stunted skills. So it's difficult to find housing. It's difficult to get your birth certificate. It's difficult to get food or find a shelter. I helped one veteran who was sort of the one who I had the softest spot for. And he was an alcoholic, and he would get benefits. And his benefits were really significant. If he had gotten his act together, he'd be living in a really nice apartment, and he would just fall off. He would spend his monthly, you know, stipend before the end of the month. He would get drunk, he would go to jail, and then he would surface and call me, and two things would happen. He would say, Lisa, I lost my letter that says I'm entitled to this funding. And so I had a stack of these papers that I would always like mail to him or fax to him. And he would always buy, I don't know why this broke my heart, but it did, he would always buy a brown leather jacket because he wanted to look really good and he wanted to envision himself that way, but it wasn't the best use of his money, but it was sort of symbolic to me ultimately, I learned that he had passed away. The Department of Veterans Affairs contacted me to tell me that he had died of alcoholism. You'd become like his family. Absolutely. Was he the one that kind of drove you to be so passionate about
0: helping others?
2: I think he was definitely one along the way, because if you have the skills and the possibilities, why wouldn't you use it? I was sitting behind a desk with like superpowers. I get to use the name of Congressman Henry Waxman, and it is a superpower. It is. And to call the VA and say that He's, you know, lost his funding again, where he couldn't be able to do it. Was it's really moving, right? And is this still a problem with current veterans that are coming back from war? It's huge. Um, Los Angeles County has, I believe, right now around four thousand homeless veterans. And again, there are veterans that West LAVA campus sits there, and they're going to be building more housing, but at just a snail's pace. It's excruciating. Every single veteran should have a home tonight.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I've driven in there, I've noticed there's a ton of abandoned buildings. It's It looks like a movie
2: set. There are two former staff people who are being indicted for taking money from movie studios and asking them, you know, bri- having bribes given to them so that they could film on the campus. So is the goal now
0: for that entire property to be redeveloped?
2: Yes, there's a master plan that's been accepted, but my gripe and concern has always been with the Department of Veterans Affairs that they just don't move quickly enough. There's no urgency and I've never understood it. And it was always incredibly frustrating to me.
0: And you're a huge part of the reason why this is getting turned around and all these homeless veterans are now going to have an an awesome place to be and live.
2: Well, this is going to sound immodest, but yes, I feel that way. I feel like I helped recruit the community and there were so many people who were NIMBYs. And I used to go around to homeowner association meetings all the time to say, it's going to be gentle, it's going to be gradual, it's going to be phased in, they're not going to abut your homes. And over time, it won them over. And And veterans, conversely, were very suspect of the community and wanted more than the community wanted to give. There was one veteran who wanted tents all over the property, and it, that didn't really make sense. And then I helped with the policy and the legislation and getting the Washington staff in all the different committees to understand the problem and plight that we have in Los Angeles. We have the largest homeless population in the country. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. That's very incredible and, again, very inspiring. Thank you.
0: As part of the work you've done, I understand you've also helped out with two other uh, important pieces of legislation. Tell us
2: quickly about those. I will. I'm really proud of them. Thank you for asking. The first one prevented the entire property from being sold. Um, Over the years, Republicans have actually wanted to sell that property. At one point, they wanted to build an NFL stadium. It's prime real estate. Oh, can you imagine? It's in the center
0: of the fanciest part of LA.
2: And I think it's probably the biggest green space west of the Mississippi that's in something that fancy. And I've never known the valuation, but I heard it was in the billions. So Congressman Waxman was instrumental in passing and having introduced and had that bill passed, which just laid everything to rest. You could look at any veteran and say, your land will never be sold. So that was pretty huge. And the second phase took place when I was working for Congressman Liu, and they were working on the master plan. The VA needed authority to enter into these very specific leases, and they didn't have that authority So I helped draft and push through with the community a piece of legislation that now allows them to enter into leases so that there can be permanent supportive housing on the property.
0: Incredible. So Lisa, a lot of people have asked me to ask this question. I've heard it from four different people. So I have to ask. Any great House of Cards moments that have
2: happened in your time working in politics? That is a good question. I think they're making it sound a little sexier than it is. I never, ever, you know, experienced that. Congressman Waxman's one of the most squeaky clean people I've ever met, and he's got so much integrity. But, you know, over the years you hear stories. There was a member of Congress who was found with $75,000 of cash in his freezer. There have been people misusing their donations for very personal things. Yeah, I mean, the corruption is rampant, and I think that's why... You know, the ratings of members of Congress and the House of Representatives are just painfully low. Okay, so now you are
0: working with another very important group of people who don't have a voice of their own. You are working to help foster
2: kids. Thank you. I have to go back about 25 years. I represented abused and neglected children in the foster care system literally 25 years ago, and I loved it, but it was very very challenging to work there. It was really depressing. And at the end of my five-year stay, Congressman Waxman was hiring, and so he brought me in-house. So you actually represented the kids? You worked directly with the children? Yeah, they were my clients in court. So one kid walked in one day, and I could tell his tennis shoes were too small. I mean, everything from that little to not being able to visit their siblings or their parents and having a foster family they didn't necessarily feel comfortable with. And so it was great to be an advocate. But I was an advocate on a case-by-case basis. You know, you advocated for eight kids in one day. And today, I'm getting to do that in a really global way.
0: You know, I was shocked when I heard that there was 35,000 kids that needed foster care. Being born and raised in Los Angeles, and, you know, I think I'm pretty kind of in tune with what goes on in my city I was, again, just floored when I heard that number. How and why do so many children end up needing foster care?
2: Well, that number, actually, I should break it down. Half of them are families who are under the supervision of the county, but their children are at home with them, but they're being supervised. And the other half are children who are in foster care, which doesn't make the number much better. I think the biggest factor I see is poverty, and poverty shouldn't be a reason to have your children taken away from you. But poverty can spiral into substance abuse and neglect and failure to get your child to school and all these things you can only imagine. I would say that we need to look at that more closely and offer families services at the front end rather than letting them fail and then picking them up and bringing them into the system.
0: You know, my younger daughter, um, a few months ago, uh, was watching Annie on the movie on television. And she asked me after she watched it, Mom, are there orphanages in Los Angeles? And, you know, I had to stop and think about
2: it. And I I didn't know the answer to that. Well, the answer is sadly, yes, but they're pretty dramatically modified and improved. There's sort of a spectrum right now in Los Angeles that concerns me. But this is what we have right now in the books. Is it called an orphanage? It's called a group home. Group home. Yeah. So on the left-hand side of the spectrum are all the positive things. It's children who are living with individual families and who may be adopted or who may remain as foster kids or have guardianships. And then in the middle are group homes, which are facilities that have, it can be many, many children all living together with a group with social workers or a supervisor and a director. And they're all supervised by the Department of Children and Family Services. So they're watched, and they're not just these big, um, clearing houses that you imagine like in a third world country, but they are group homes. So who currently fosters children in Los Angeles? I don't think that people with high wealth or even upper middle class are aware of the significant need in Los Angeles. So I don't see a lot of that and it's, it's unusual and it's distressing. I know that we're trying to launch some recruitment campaigns because we really need foster parents in Los Angeles County. Is this the place where I could give myself a plug yeah absolutely
0: listen if at the end of this podcast we get you know one kid into
2: foster care or adopted this whole podcast will be worth it I totally agree so if anyone is interested at all my office number is 213-974-3333. I've been watching the show This Is Us. I reference shows a lot just
0: cuz that's what I do. There's, you know, the story of Randall and his wife who are obviously very affluent and they decide to bring in a foster child. And I think what you're talking about is, you know, how do we attract more people that have the, you know, means to do so to come in and raise their hand and say, "You know what?" This is something that I'd like to do. I'd like to make a huge, meaningful difference in a child's life. Is there anything that you guys are doing right now to help inspire families like that to raise their hand? Well, I think the
2: Department of Children and Family Services that has direct supervision over the system is finally coming into the 21st century. In the next few weeks, they're going to ask the Board of Supervisors to spend a few million dollars and hire a really progressive firm to do recruitment ads. But in general, it's been pretty embarrassing and abysmal it's just been bare bones like there's a website that has information really important
0: tell us about the kids um you know there's a lot of stigma that comes with older kids that you need to foster
2: yeah unfortunately i actually think the this is us thread that you're talking about is pretty accurate some of these children have had up to 10 placements and you can imagine the trauma i mean there's they're being traumatized in their home There's a trauma of being taken from your home. There's a a trauma of being placed with strangers and then multiple placements. You can only imagine how these kids are acting out and feeling. And we're just now coming around to really understanding the concept of trauma and how to address it in these kids. It's called trauma-informed care, that this whole package of treatments that these kids are finally getting addressed. If we helped them more, if we gave them more services and intervention, we'd be doing much better.
0: And when you become a foster parent, what are you told is usually the time commitment?
2: Well, there's a whole range. If it's a child that has just been detained, taken out of its family's home, and it's a newborn or a baby, the social worker is obligated to tell the parents that, or the foster parents, that the birth parents have the opportunity to reunify with their kid. So it's
0: probably very difficult uh, for people to make the decision because you don't want to emotionally connect with someone and then have them taken away from you. But at the same time, you have to understand how much it impacts and helps them by doing it. Right. So it's kind and of then, this weird balance. Yeah.
2: And then there's the other end of the scale, which is a 15-year-old, you know, teen who wants to be adopted. And there's a family. I have a friend who's looking for a 15-year-old, which is just amazing to me. And she wants to adopt.
0: So a huge part of your job is to help shape policy for these kids. Tell us some of your goals. I have a
2: a piece of paper that I should have in front of me called Year of the Child 2018 that I put together as sort of a wish list. And they're not going to sound profound, but what I used to think about in court and what I think about now is, what does any kid need? What does your daughter need? What does my daughter need? And it's so basic, and these children are not getting it. We are trying to develop a camping program so that every single foster kid who's age appropriate will have a week every summer, somewhere in Los Angeles, where they'll get to camp. And these kids have very little time outside. They've not seen waterfalls. They've not seen bouncing houses. They've not seen nature. Yeah. The other thing that's super exciting this summer is that my boss had passed an LGBTQ motion asking five different departments in the county to come up with recommendations about how we can assess these kids because they have another layer of trauma having to come to terms with who they are and coming out. So I'm really looking forward to taking the lead on that. It should be really interesting. That's amazing. So going back to the four
0: S's, again, success is a big part of where we all want to end up, but it feels like for you, success is never kind of a destination. It is a part of the process because you keep finding new successes. So how have you defined success in your career?
2: I think when I left Henry Waxman, I was really proud of the work I had done. His office was very anemic when I joined it. And there was just a skeleton crew. And I built up a whole constituent services program. I built up a whole program, having him go out into the community more and take more meetings. And I spoke on his behalf. And I worked on a lot of big issues. We talked about the Veterans Administration. And I left feeling like I had built something. And I hoped that when I left, the structure was going to remain. So success is such a broad term. But tell us what it personally means for you. This is going to sound cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway. It means every day going in to my office and doing my very best to reduce the number of foster kids and the foster kids who are there, giving them a better, richer, more full life and helping them to thrive. And the way I've been thinking about my work is that the Board of Supervisors is very um, liberal in its views, and we have an incredible budget. So if you can't put together the votes and the funding for really interesting and creative programs, you're not succeeding. So that's sort of like what I've been chasing. And it's new to me. In Congress, I didn't have this. So my boss sort of laughs at me that I'd like whisper to her, we have the votes and we have the money. She's like, yes, we do. So that's sort of what I've been chasing. I also understand
0: you have what you call Lisa's six rules of engagement. Oh, yes, I do. So you wrote this to me. So number one, ruling career options out is as important as ruling them in. So that's about that.
2: Yeah, that goes back to our internship. You know, you when I was in the private practice, even though they let me go, when I looked back, I shouldn't have been in that law firm. It was just not a good fit. And internships, that's why I say to people, you can say this is awful. I hated this. You know, I hate the government or or working in politics. OK, number two, learn good judgment. There is nothing, nothing more important than having good judgment. I truly believe that. Because you want to be able to have someone stand in your door, I'm sure it happens to you every day, and ask a question, do we do this or do we do this? And you have to be the one in that moment that says, oh, no, we don't do this. That will take us down a bad path. I think it's sort of this invisible thing that people don't talk about, but you are counted on for your judgment. Your clients count on you for your judgment. Correct. Correct. Number three, prepare, prepare, prepare. Yes. I have friends at work who think I over-prepare, prepare, prepare. There's no such thing. I agree. The reason I got my job in dependency court when I was representing abused and neglected kids is because I found the code section that oversees the foster care system. I literally like did the research, and I had it all highlighted in pink. And during the interview, it was on my lap. And my future boss looked over and said, what is on your lap? And I said, oh, the welfare and institution code section. And she was like, are you kidding me? You were so prepared, and she was impressed. And that was it. And like, study the website, study the person. Who yeah, I to studied with. you
0: last night, really late.
2: Good, thank you. <laughs>
0: I was nervous. Meeting so number I, I three. I felt like I needed to be prepared. <laughs> so I agree with that one.
2: All right. So number four: No task is too small. That could not be more true. If I ask an intern to make a spreadsheet, and they make a spreadsheet, but they come up with like four different categories and then they color code it and then they put it in a file and then they make someone else a copy. You notice that person. And if you ask someone to get you a bunch of pencils and they're not sharpened, you notice that person. Agreed. You always you the, it's
0: sometimes the details that you notice the the most. I think so. This actually pertains to my business as well and I think one thing that my clients appreciate about me is that I care as much about the big glossy TV commercial as I do about the little price tag in store. Um, you know, just because I think that every touch point with a consumer or customer is as important. And so if you put all of your emphasis on, you know, the big glossy things and not the little details, people are going to remember those things. So. I think
2: so too. I'm sure your clients really appreciate that.
0: All right. So number five is one that I need some help with. No typos ever. I
2: have rejected people and not given them interviews if they have a typo on their resume. I can't take it. It's like nails on a chalkboard. When I do interview someone and I'm willing to interview them and they have typos, I say to them and like I kind of call them out and probably almost embarrass them.
0: Okay, and your final one, number six, in the end, your reputation
2: is all you have. And someone taught me that many, many years ago. And I think that's true. If you're not trustworthy or if you're a gossip or if you don't keep your word, People lose their trust in you and it's very hard to recover. Correct. If a that lot of happens. things
0: can be taken away from you, but not your reputation. Yeah,
2: that's exactly right. So, in all, She
0: Dynasty is about powerful women who are pushing boundaries in the workplace and in life. And tell us, what does being a woman in politics mean to you?
2: It means that you have to work harder. It just is that way. I hope one day it's not. I hope when my daughter grows up, she won't have to do that. But somehow men walk in beating their chests and everybody assumes they're talented. And women, it's the reverse. You have to walk in and prove yourself. And, you know, I'm not a young person, but to have been starting a job just in the last year and a half, I knew I was starting from scratch. I mean, I came in with what I think is a good reputation, but I've been working really hard. And is most of your team male, female, or is there a good split? I think mostly female, probably 70% female. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, it's wonderful.
0: Well, Lisa, I think you have answered most of my questions. I'd like to bring Katie back. I know she has been waiting patiently to ask you a few questions. And I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming and doing this with us. And again, inspiring, I think, everybody in this room right now. It's truly, truly an inspiration. And- I can't express enough how much you are a woman who rules. Thank you. It's been a real honor. All right. So Katie, you want to come
2: on over?
1: Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much. I have to say sitting here and listening to you. I'm so inspired right now.
2: Well, thank you, Katie. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: (laughs) So as I was sitting there, um, I was just thinking, you know, listening to you, here's a woman who knows her strengths and knows her accomplishments. In a world where women, I think, are still encouraged to minimize themselves, where do you get that strength to just be unapologetically great?
2: I would say two part. One, I have incredible mentors and one in particular comes to mind and she is that way. And she just is relentless in saying to me, don't say it that way. Absolutely not. When you talk to your boss, say it this way, or you didn't write this email in a way that I think you could have. And then I'm sorry to say to all you super young women, it comes with experience. You know, I messed up, I've made mistakes and... The beautiful thing about like having creases around your eyes and in your forehead is that you have something to show for it. And I am, I'm super confident and I feel good about that. Having said that, I really still believe in mentorship. If you can find a really strong woman and model after her and have someone be willing to look after you as a mentor, that can be really helpful.
1: I know for myself as an adopted person, one of the most intricate parts of that has been the relationships. And I'm I'm curious to hear your experience of families building relationships, whether that's new foster parents and foster kids or the siblings and the extended family. I wonder if you could speak about your experience with families building these new relationships.
2: I'm so glad you asked that. There's all this new research. A new study came out today, or at least it's printed today, that every kid needs one person. That's all they need is one positive contact in their life. And they live longer, they thrive. If you're a foster parent, if you're a social worker, no matter what it is, helps you, that is someone who you can have along. There's two examples come to mind. One is that we had a panel not that long ago of LGBTQ youth, and one of the trans young people said that his social worker took her own money and bought him dresses and took him to get his hair and makeup done. And that was the best money this woman has ever spent. And he spoke about it. So obviously, it was meaningful, and that's what he needed. And then the other end of the spectrum is that we had a really terrible suicide a few months ago of a foster boy who was 15 years old. And I went to tell my boss about it, and she said to me, he didn't have anyone. Like, if he had one person, the chances are really good that he'd still be here. And I have come to really believe that. And for you, maybe you, d- you weren't aware of it, obviously, because you were adopted at birth, but you had two people who stepped up to the plate and said, we're going to be those people to Katie.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm so lucky to be in that situation. And with that in mind, my final, you know, thought that I would love to hear from you is, what would you say to the people of Los Angeles, um, you know, who may hear this and who may feel for these 35,000 kids? You know, you have said it is difficult to foster. So what do you need from them? A commitment. I mean, really, that's
2: what it takes. There are, you know, retired UCLA professors. There are people who have had fertility issues. There are people who are young and weren't thinking about having kids and thought maybe they would just try it and see how it would work out. And there are people who... I'm hoping we're inching towards it, and maybe they'll listen to this podcast and say, that's enough. That puts me over the edge. But again, if one person would call and say that they're interested, it would sort of make my day, and I'm going to repeat my phone number. It's 213-974-3333.
1: Thank you so much for everything that you do. Echoing what Valerie was saying earlier, I mean, I, she's in advertising and I'm a screenwriter. And it does sometimes feel like we're working for ourselves to be creative and to have this outlet. Um, and so to come across someone like you who has dedicated their life to vulnerable people is just so amazing. And we're so lucky to have you in this city. Oh, thank you so much.